Hey Buddha Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show, where we invite e-commerce entrepreneurs, marketers, and agencies to talk about e-commerce, the best strategies and tactics, and what to implement in your own e-com store. Before we jump into this episode, I ask you to subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. And now let's jump into the episode. Hello everyone, here is Daniel Budai with a new episode of our Ecom show and uh, today I'm here with the founder of uh, Xero Shoes, uh, Steven Session and a uh, very interesting story that actually I was looking for a barefoot uh, shoe and it was one of the companies that I found, Google, Google showed me Xero Shoes as one of the companies and uh, I was about to buy a pair of shoes and actually the next day or next week, uh, our team member told me that uh, he had this call with Steven and <laughs> I was like, okay, I, I I know this company. I don't know how, somehow I know. I'm really bad with names, by the way, with brand names. And of course, then I realized that's why I know uh, your brand. I wanted to buy the Dillon actually. Oh yeah, that's a great shoe. Um, so, so yeah, Xero shoes. So, um, go to the website, great brand. They are very close to 40,000 five-star reviews now. One of oh, the I think, I thought more, I thought we were in the 50, mid fifties or so. We got a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's what I can see on the website, 38,000. That's huh. great. Okay. Something's off. We'll have to, I'll have to look into that and get that updated. Yeah. Um, and they they've been in you know National Geographics and, and Shark Tank actually I will ask you about that and also your story is very interesting because you are a serial entrepreneur so I will ask a lot of questions about that as well so let's jump into it let the fun uh, begin where are you Stephen in Colorado yeah in Colorado between Denver and Boulder okay so this is not your first business right no. you are. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had a job. Uh, don't have a resume, never interviewed for a job. Um, so my whole thing has been just basically I've been really lucky that things that interest me are things that can be companies. And so I just pursue those. And that's what I've done for 40 years. Yeah. What was your first venture? Well, my first one was polishing my father's shoes. He had a lot big shoe collection. So I got 50 cents for shoe for boots and 25 cents for shoes. So that was the first one. And then uh, my first thing professionally, I did magic for a living. I worked, did shows for kids' birthday parties. I was a street performer. Um, I did very well doing that. Then um, this doesn't sound like a job or business per se, but I did stand-up comedy for a living as well. And then I ended up, um, uh, well, while I was doing comedy, I had a lot of time off in the daytime. I ended up going to Columbia University Film School and got a master's in screenwriting. And I ended up inventing what became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. So that was the first biggie. And then after that, a bunch of you know smaller things um, based on internet marketing, um, real estate investing. Um, I taught courses around the world on meditation, on behavioral economics, um, basically applied well, applied behavioral economics, if you will. Uh, and I know I'm forgetting things. I hosted a television show for a while. Um, usually when, if I'm at a dinner party with my wife and someone asked me, or yeah, they say, what do you do? 
um, I turn to my wife and say, I'll let you feel this one. And I walk away because otherwise it would take way too long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few interesting things here. So I noticed that somehow comedians, they become good marketers. I know several people who became uh, founders of a marketing agency, e-commerce company. Do you agree? You can see well, that? Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing because there's two things that I've seen comedians uh, who leave comedy become really good at. Marketing is one. Law is another. I know a lot of former comics who are lawyers that are, wow. and they're really good and politicians, actually. Variation on a theme. Interesting. Uh, I guess it's just people skill, skills, right? It's... it's that's a part of it. It's also um, being somewhat fearless in a conversation. You know that you can handle anything that comes up. But the other thing is just a way of thinking and a way of um, looking at information. Because basically a lot of comedy is trying to identify problems and joke about the solutions. So we're, we're, comics are very aware of what annoys us. And we're good at, at, at talking about that in a way that's provocative, whether you do, you're doing that um, as a potential, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, come on, I can do it. Uh, like, come I got it. It's not even, oh, it is Friday. No wonder I can't think. Okay. So, um, elected official, that was the phrase that I was waiting for. So potential elected official, or I mean, literally all the, the, the ex comics I know in law and politics, they say, they've said the same thing verbatim, which is do knowing how to say funny things is like having a superpower because usually it's undermining the competition in a way that they can't respond to. So yeah. and I don't want to, you know, uh, suggest any, anything other than Donald Trump was really good at this. Wasn't as funny per se. He's not really funny, but this thing of like finding a way of saying something that just cuts to the quick, cuts the quick, and and just makes other people unable to respond. That's what comics do for a living. So yeah. um, you know, that's that's a, a valuable skill in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, and you can be transparent in a unique <clears throat> way. I mean. People that are afraid to share certain thoughts and and <laughs> yeah. Them, right? Yeah, uh, Com comedians just the other way around. Um, my HR manager, you know, if I wasn't the co CEO of the company, I, I'd be fired on a daily basis because we are um, the wire between our brain and our mouth is very short and doesn't have anything in the middle to you know stop. Yeah, stuff. No filter, right? Yeah. No, no. We are what we are is what you see. Yeah, interesting. Um, and the other thing is, so you did, you tried many things and uh, yeah, I can, I, I ask people who tried and, you know, have done many things that, uh, why don't you rather focus on one single thing? And because yeah. other people, they teach this, right? That focus is the most important. And I can see people doing the opposite and they are successful. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. First of all, anyone who tells you there's a secret to becoming successful is lying to your face because mm -hmm. everyone does it differently. I got I to gotta tell you a fun story about this. Years ago, somebody um, offered me the opportunity to pay a lot of money to go to see Richard Branson on his island, on Necker Island. Mm -hmm. And I said, why would I want to do that? And they were like, what do you mean? You could hang out with Richard Branson. I said, yeah, why would I want to do that? They said, what, imagine what you could learn from Richard Branson. I said, I already know what I could learn from Richard Branson. They said, oh, really? What? I said, I'm not Richard Branson. Mm -hmm. um, and here's the real joke. Neither is he anymore. He, if he had to start from scratch, he wouldn't be able to reproduce what he did then because the world has changed around him and he yeah. has changed as well. So... Um, I have a line, I go, all companies rise to the level of the neuroses of their founders. 
I don't do focus. That's just not my thing. I My thing is I come up with a million ideas. Someone else is going to have to prioritize them. Someone else is going to have to figure it out. And in terms of sticking with one thing, um, that's just not, you know, businesses evolve. So the ideation phase is one thing. The That startup phase is another thing. That initial growth phase is another. And it gets to a certain point where it's just not my skill set any longer. So I tend to move on or either because something changes dramatically or because it's just no longer interesting to me because I'm not doing things that I'm valuable for. So in my own company right now, we know we're not that far away from having to hire someone way above me because um, the company's getting to a size where it needs a different skill set at the managerial level. And I know what my role will continue to be. It's doing what I do best, but not doing the things that need someone with a whole different set of skills and understanding. Lena and I, my wife and I are very smart people, but we're smart enough to know that um, it's dumb to try to reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are looking for a CEO now or? I'm not looking. We just know it's going to be. I mean, we're, yeah, we're not actively looking for, for that, but we know at a certain point that there's going to be a couple of opportunities that we'll have to evaluate. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about uh, Xero Shoes. So when did you sure. launch the company and what was the original uh, goal? Oh, that's a second part of that question. It's the most interesting. So we started Zero Shoes at the end of November 20, 14 years ago, 2009. So we're coming up on our 14th anniversary in just a couple of weeks. And the initial goal, frankly, we thought um, on day one, we thought maybe this will be a little lifestyle business, you know, makes a car payment or something. And within a couple of weeks, we went, oh, no, this is going to be our full time job. And then from that, my wife and I had been retired from 2000 to 2009. We had done some clever real estate investing with a partner. And we thought that that investment uh, system that we were doing was going to give us cash flow to support us for the rest of our lives. And then that changed when in, in 2006, actually, we predicted, predicted the real estate crash because the things that we were doing, well, frankly, the things that we were doing became impossible to do because other people figured out what we were doing, but didn't know how to value things correctly. So they were overpaying for opportunities. And my last friend became, you know, said, I'm a real estate investor now. So we called our partner in 2006 and said, start selling everything. This is going to fall apart. So our original goal with Zero Shoes was how do we get to a point where someone's willing to buy us for an amount of money that if we put it in a suitcase and shoved it under our bed, we could live for the rest of our lives. We yeah. were incredibly naive and um, realized nobody was willing to buy a company that was as small as it was when, you know, for what we thought would turn into, let's say a $5 million buyout. And people kept saying, you know, we don't care when you're at a million. We don't care when you're at two. We don't care when you're at five. Then they kept moving the goalposts. We don't care when you're at 10 or 20 or 40. So the goalposts have moved. But the initial goal was literally just, you know, first, what do we do to make up the income that we were getting from our real estate stuff that was falling apart? And then what do we want to do to build a business where, frankly, we could get to a point where we could retire? Um, whether we continue to work or not, that's one thing. But whether you have to work for money, that's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us more about the products. How many products do you have? How are they different, especially when you started the company? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how was the landscape back then. I guess it was very different than now. Yes. Well, when we started in the end of 2009, there was really only two other companies doing what we do. And let me explain what that is in a nutshell. Um, 
the human body is an amazing thing. Your feet have a quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body. That's so they can move, and that's for balance, agility, and mobility. They also have more nerve endings in the sole than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. So your brain thinks that information is important, and it's important for balance, agility, mobility, um, and that's just the feedback to know how to adjust for what terrain you're on and whether you're moving fast or slow, and et cetera, et cetera. So most shoes, most modern footwear, gets in the way of that movement gets in the way of that sensation, that feedback loop. So our job is to let your feet do their job so the rest of your body can do its job. Because if your feet can't do their job, all those functions about balance, agility, mobility, uh, and feedback try unsuccessfully to move up your ankle, your knee, your hip, and your back. So we want to let your body do what it's made to do from the foot all the way up to the top of your head. So our shoes just get out of the way. So I'm going to have to grab one to demonstrate this for anyone watching. So we have a wider foot-shaped toe box. So your toes don't get squeezed together, which messes up with everything. You don't do push-ups with your feet, fingers squeezed together. You spread them apart for better balance and strength. Same thing with your feet. We're low to the ground, so um, that's for balance and agility. We don't elevate your heel. That messes with your posture and puts strain on your back and your knees and your hips and possibly your neck even. We don't have a thing called toe spring where your toes can't get flat to the ground because that screws up the tendons in your feet, makes it so movement gets more problematic. The soles of our shoes are designed to give you traction and protection, but also the ground feedback that your brain is looking for. And we make our soles differently than modern running shoes in particular, where they say replace them every like two to 500 miles. We developed a new rubber um, where we back it up with a 5,000-mile sole warranty. Now, are you guaranteed to get 5,000 miles? No, that's why it's a warranty. We have a system to give you something if you do wear them out faster. And zero shoes are so lightweight that uh, that makes you more efficient because you're not having to carry something as heavy around. And we've literally had people say they went to bed still wearing their zero shoes because they forgot they had them on. So that's the gist of what we are doing across the board. But when we started... We had a do-it-yourself barefoot sandal making kit. So basically, it originally was a we were getting buying large sheets of rubber that we were cutting into small sheets of rubber. We were getting long long things of um, nylon cord. We were cutting into smaller things of nylon cord, and selling that with instructions on how to make sandals. Basically, the way humans have been making sandals since the beginning of humans and footwear. And there have been a couple of recent archaeological digs in Europe um, showing sandals from about six thousand years ago that look just like our original do-it-yourself sandals. But then we heard from people saying. Well, I love this idea, but I'm not going to make my own. So can you make something ready to wear? And I spent years trying to figure out how to do that and eventually did have a patent on that design idea. And then people say, that's great. I love these sandals, but what am I going to do in the winter or if I have to go to work? So we developed ready to wear um, uh, closed toe shoes, casual shoes, performance shoes. And, uh, and it's just expanded from there. So now we're for the first three and a half years, all we were selling was a do-it-yourself kit. And for the first six years, basically, wait, is that true? Yeah, for the first six years, just sandals. Um, now we have over 52 styles of casual and performance shoes, boots, and sandals for pretty much every activity you can think of, from taking a walk to running an ultramarathon to playing golf or tennis or pickleball or um, Dance Dance Revolution or skydiving or you know standing on your feet all day in a warehouse or if you're a doctor or a nurse. I mean, literally, I can't think of one use case that we haven't heard someone is wearing our shoes for but we're always developing new products to to address specific use cases better than we have before for example we had a great trail running shoe we finally released a waterproof version of that shoe okay. um, that took a while to get to so we could do it well so yeah. we're always we get a we get a ton of feedback from our customers about what they want next and then we also have smart product people we put those two together to figure out what we want to do 
each season, we're typically launching between um, eight and 12 new products a year. And um, that's been really exciting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the sweet spot, right? So it's, I don't know how many Apple launches, but something similar number, like five products a year or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, I don't know. I don't pay attention to other people that much because we got too much going on here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which one is your most uh, popular product? Um, the let's see, where's one on the wall? Um, the most popular running, you know, it changes. So um, the uh, it's a hard thing to answer that question because when we launch something new, if it does really well, it's still going to take a little bit of time to catch up to something that's been around for six, seven years. So I think our best-selling shoe is still called the Prio. P R I O. Um, here's let's see, here's one example. So it's an all around kind of everything you can think of fitness shoe. We made it originally as a running fitness shoe. Um, and that's what it's designed for. It does really well. Um, but then we also have like this shoe, the Dylan that you talked about, which yeah. is a casual shoe that just blew up. And this is the other problem with knowing what's doing the best. We sold out of it so quickly and then got more in and sold out of that so quickly that it's hard to know what the numbers are. So the casual side of our business has been growing really, really fast. And if we look at the top 10 products that we sell, uh, there are four or maybe even five of them that didn't even exist a year ago. So I think those are gonna catch up and ultimately end up being the winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and when you launched this company, so you, you were the person who designed these uh, the sandals first and then the shoes or who, who was it? Well, um, happily, we've gotten a lot of help. Uh, so I'm not a designer technically, but I'm smart about design. So I've contributed to a lot of the design ideas. But um, uh, very early on when we were still just doing a do-it-yourself sandal kit, the first thing we did was we made our own outsoles that people could use for that DIY kit. Uh, that had our own traction, that had our own rubber, that was more durable, et cetera. That was designed by some people that we met socially who happened to have been in footwear for 35 years before we met them. They took us on uh, because they liked what we were doing and they liked us, they said, and they were really, really helpful. Then we met a guy named Dennis Driscoll, who has been a footwear designer at that time. I think he'd been doing it for 35 or 40 years as well. And he, we again, met him really by accident. He was walking his dog, uh, his dogs, plural, and we had a friend walking his dog. The dogs knew each other, so they started hanging out. And then the two guys started talking, and our friend said, oh, uh, what do you do? And Dennis said, oh, I'm the head of footwear design at Crocs. And our friend said, oh, my friend Stephen and Lena have a footwear company, which was not even true. We had a do-it-yourself sandal-making kit company. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, Dennis and I got together for lunch, and he said, I got your sandal kit, and it changed my life and changed my wife's life. Um, you know, we used to run and hike and we haven't cause we've had problems and now they went away. So how can I help? I said, I don't think I can afford you. He goes, I just retired. I went, Oh, you're hired. So, um, he came on board, you know, for pennies on the dollar and he designed our first, um, closed toe shoes and actually helped design our first ready to wear sandal and then our first closed toe shoes. So Dennis has been our lead designer, but then we brought on additional people along the way. So we have a whole design and production team that does everything now. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, tell us more about uh, Shark Tank. So when were you featured in the show and uh, at all, why did you want to get into Shark Tank? Um, before we applied for the show, we just had all these people coming up to us. This is in like 2000, this is 2011. We had a lot of people saying to us, I mean, so our business is only two years old at that time, not barely yeah. that. 
And uh, people kept saying, you guys should be on Shark Tank. We're going, what the hell are you talking about? So we started watching the show, and then we watched on YouTube all of the original versions from Dragon's Den in the UK, then Dragon's Den in Canada, and then we watched all the previous episodes from the US. And we're thinking, yeah, that, that would actually be really good for us just to, to see if we could get a big deal investor as well as just the publicity. But we really thought that you know we could find someone who would really understand what we were doing and be able to help and really grow this. So we applied. Um, at first, actually, I just sent an email or did something. I didn't know that there was actually a season that they do all the applications and all the vetting to see who they want on the show. Then I figured that out. So when the season opened, first I sent an email and then I made a video and I sent the video and I was prepared to go into a live audition too. But just literally as I'm buying the ticket to do that, we got a phone call saying, um, hey, we want to interview you and you know see if you, we should have you on the show. So we did this interview, went well, great. They said, now we need to make, you need to make a video, five minute video and send it to us by next Monday. And I said, this is on a Thursday. And I said, not a problem. We can do it over the weekend. Not knowing that my wife had planned a surprise 50th birthday party for me that weekend. So um, that was a, she freaked, she did an amazing job of not freaking out in front of me. Um, she's like, hey, that'll be great. We can do that. And then it's like, oh no. So we sent in that video um, along with an application, which is a, crazy long thing that you have to hand write and that didn't work for us so we had to hire someone from craigslist to take our typewritten answers and hand write them in a way that was legible because <laughs> my writing and lena's neither legible and then they called us and said they want us on the show at some point they said you know maybe it's, it's going to be like eight weeks from now we're like all right uh and then two weeks later they called we want you next week it's like yikes um and in the meantime we had done a lot of preparation we read all the Sharks autobiographies. We did fake Shark Tank sessions with other entrepreneurs that we knew and people who had bought and sold businesses. We consulted with bankers and investors and VCs and private equity people and people who bought shoe companies and people who sold shoe companies to come up with a valuation that made sense that we could justify knowing that the Sharks are going to try and talk us down. So, you know, building in a little bit of this is real, but we're also willing to give. Yeah, yeah. So we taped the show in July of 2012. It aired originally the end of January 2013 and then again the beginning of June 2013. And we, again, we thought that it would be a great opportunity in a number of ways. It was and it wasn't. So we didn't make a deal. We turned down a deal. Kevin, we were offering 8% uh, of the company for $400,000. And Kevin said, I'll give you the four hundred grand for 50% of the company. And we said, no. And he said, well, you can make a counteroffer. I said, all right, um, I'll bump it up by 20%, 10% of the company. And he said, you're crazy. I went, maybe, because um, all entrepreneurs are to a certain extent. But we knew that those numbers were things we could justify. And frankly, I was willing to go down, I was willing to go down to about a $2.5 million valuation. So I was willing to go to about 16, 18% tops. Yeah, and yeah. 50 was a, a non-starter. But it, A, gave us a lot of attention. And even then, again, a do-it-yourself sandal kit product for like 20, 25 bucks. We did three months worth of sales in the week following the show. Uh, and we heard from a lot of people saying who knew nothing about the whole barefoot running thing. They hadn't read the book Born to Run that really cap cat catalyzed that whole barefoot running idea. They just went, oh my God, I hate shoes. I love that idea of letting my feet do what's natural. And so that gave us a lot of confidence that we were really onto something. Uh, and over the years, it's proven to be very valuable because people get to see us in what they think of as a very high pressure situation, which I guess technically it is. But again, as a former stand up comic, that's my favorite thing to walk into. It's like, oh, this is going to be like heckling 
and responding to hecklers. This is this is what I live for. So um, I had a tremendous amount of fun, and it's proven to be just you know very valuable. And and they do uh, reruns over and over and over. So it's really been the gift that keeps on giving. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for the criticisms and comments from the sharks and 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 the preparation that we had to do that made us think, okay, this is not well. The preparation that we did plus the feedback we'd already been getting from customers who were saying that what we were doing is changing their lives, put all that together. And that's what gave us the desire to really commit to this and really build it into something significant uh, early, somewhere around the shark tank era. I remember saying to my wife, wouldn't it be nice to have a little internet business that took a couple hours a day, made a couple hundred grand a year. She goes, that's what we have. I went, yep. Can't stay that way though. <laughs> and, and shark tank really was the catapult for, you know, deciding to really move this forward as, as big as we could. Hey Budai Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show. I ask you to subscribe to this podcast and if you like it, make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. I hope we can serve our audience in the best way. And now let's jump into the episode. In this podcast, I had probably now at least a dozen guests who they were in Shark Tank and everyone says that, that you know, even if you, and I think only one of them uh, could make a deal with the sharks, but even the rest of them, they said that, you know, it really skyrocketed their business uh, in multiple ways. So, yeah. I mean, and we were, we were premature. I mean, really, if we had the opportunity to have been on the show when we had our first closed toe shoes, even that would have made a huge difference, but we didn't know we were naive and it worked again, worked out great, just was not what we imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the marketing side of things. So on the website, I can see that you are the marketing manager, let's say, or, you know, the main marketer in the team, right? Yeah. We can say that. So what's the marketing strategy now? How it, uh, it changed over the years? What channels you use online and what you don't really? And, and what are the reasons of that? Uh, the only things we're not doing are things that we haven't found a way to make work yet or that we haven't had the the money to try them efficiently. So for example, uh, on the things that we haven't made work, um, TikTok and Pinterest, just really, we haven't found a way to make those work either organically or paid. On the things that we haven't had the money to really test well, uh, programmatic and native, and really CTV as well, connected television or, or OTT, those things, we don't have the resources or we don't have the, the assets that I'm confident with, you know, for doing a significant test. Otherwise, we're doing pretty much everything that you can think of. And what's changed over the years is simply that, that in the early days, I mean, I was one of the first guys doing SEO back in, oh boy, um, 32 years ago. And, and what was happening then, it was easy. You just stuffed a bunch of keywords in white text and tiny print on the bottom of the page with a white background so no one could see them. That's literally all you had to do. All of these things have not only changed and continue to change. Um, every platform where you can advertise, you know, starts out free or cheap, then gets more expensive. You got to figure out how to do it. They always start out without good analytic tools, so you don't know how well things are really working. They usually get better, but they're still not good. But now there's so many other places for people to engage with uh, with anybody or any brand. Now the problem is, you know, they're engaging in all these different places, and every one of those platforms wants to take credit for a sale. Yeah. yeah and. Yeah. And of course, with iOS and people wanting more privacy, which 
quick, uh, quick um, public service announcement. This idea that you don't want people to know who you are so they can't serve ads just to you is ludicrous. You only want ads for things that you want. And you just need to be smart enough to be able to say yes or no to the product. But if you're a, a single guy who's 20 years old, you don't need to see ads for women for women's products if you're pregnant or for products for pregnant women. That's the better way of saying it. So, you know, let's let's be honest about that. Now, that said, you know, having control over your data and the fact that other people are making money off of it without your permission or understanding or profit, that's a whole other conversation. But the privacy part, the conversation gets a bit convoluted. Anyway, all that said, there's now so many more places to do so many more things uh, as a brand, as a customer. And you can't just, you know, there's some, there are great stories of people who only focused on one channel and they've done very well. But if you're building a real business, you need more than one channel. You need to be doing more than one thing. You need to be good at email. You need to be good at SEO. You need to be good at organic advertising and paid advertising. And if you're not good at all of those or finding people who are good at all of those, you don't really have a business. You have something that at some point is going to fall apart. Or the better way I can say that, I met a guy from um, Bain Capital. Bain is a consulting firm, but they also have an investment arm. And he said, uh, this is back in 2018, he said it used to be that it was really hard to get to 100 million, but if you did, then uh, it would be easy to get to 500 million because that's what a real business is like. But now, for many people, they find it's easy to get to 100 million, but then it falls apart because they don't have a real business. So for us, it's been the longer path to get to 100 million, but we can see the path from there to 500 very clearly. And I've watched a whole bunch of things that were flashing the pans on TikTok or on Instagram or wherever. Um, they're gone now. Yeah, I think... Uh... Now with these online channels, Meta, Google, or maybe even TikTok, uh, if you use only one channel or maybe two of them, you can scale to eight figure. I can see companies, yeah. uh, but then they can fall apart, as you said, because yeah. it's not a sustainable business. They rely on one platform and anything can happen. So well, you know, the other thing, what happened in the early days of e-commerce and digitally native brands is they were running on a software model. It was basically, you know, we'll make no money. It'll, we'll make it up in volume. We'll get a lot of people and eventually we'll figure out how to make money. Complete yeah. bullshit. That doesn't work, never worked, and has proven not to work. And it's actually hurt people like us who have actually made money online the whole time when we're being compared to companies like Warby Parker or Casper or Bonobos or any of them that didn't yeah. make money online. And um, or even, you know, in our industry, all birds never made money online and they thought somehow they could make it up with volume. That just doesn't work. So we're getting lumped in with that, even though we've been making we've been profitable as we've been growing online. So it's a bit of a challenge. I mean, hats off to all birds. This is going to sound like a weird compliment. It was them deciding to go public, which, in my opinion, they had to do to pay, have any chance the investors could make any of some of the investors could make any of their money back. But when they filed to their, it's called the S1 to go public. It's all the documentation for the SEC. People saw that they hadn't been making money, even though they'd been saying that they were profitable. And then they started looking at all the other companies, like again, Warby Parker and, and you know, you name it, and found that they weren't really making money either. And then people started going, wait a minute, this is not what we've been told. And so I'm glad, because I'm a big fan of the truth. So I'm glad the truth came out. It has, of course, made it difficult for, again, companies that are, and we're not just digitally native, we're an omni-channel business and we're international as well. So we don't really compare, but that's not how human minds work. They go, oh, you're making your money online? Well, we're not a big fan of digitally native companies. Like, what? So it's a bit of a challenge. 
Yeah, I can see this trend that uh, e-commerce, physical e-commerce companies, they try to run their businesses like a software company, and it's very different. Uh, other could be Oatly. I don't know if you know that sure. brand. Sure. And, uh, I have a friend who invested a ton of money into them because he got convinced that maybe they will bankrupt. I don't know. They are doing very bad now. Well, you know, you, that's an interesting point. There's another thing that people in the investment world got enamored with, which was um, subscription companies, software as a service or, or subscription companies, because they go, oh, it's, you know, consistent. It's like, no, at the end of the year, let's use software as an example. Having a company that software as a service for, for many companies or many software companies, not all, and I'll clarify that in a second. Yeah. The, the difference between having, you know, money every month, a small amount of money every month, versus something where you do an upgrade every year and you get a big hit every year, at the end of the year, the numbers are the same. But because the private equity firms or the venture capitalist could take something that seemed to be more stable, even though the average subscription length was like three months, so there's a constant need to generate new customers and eventually you run out, but they could do financial juggling to basically extract money from those companies because there was something consistent in a way that you can't do when things are a little lumpier. But that's just you know, people taking advantage of a company. And again, there are certain SaaS companies where um, the length of time that somebody's with the company is much larger, like some of the things that we use on a daily basis, um, uh, just our online, our, our VOIP phones, for example. We've been with two companies in 14 years. That's a, that's a whole different thing than a subscription meal plan where most customers are there for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very insightful. Thanks for sharing this. Um, I have to ask you about email marketing because that's my main <laughs> yeah. area. So how do you think about this? Uh, who, who manages your email marketing and, and what's your approach there? How, yeah, how do you think about this channel? I think about the channel. Um, I'm going to say something funny um, to start this. I get emails almost, almost daily, it seems, from someone who wants to help manage email for us. And they go, you know, your email should be 40% of your revenue. I go, no, it shouldn't. They go, what should it be? I don't know. doesn't matter. But the idea that there's some magic number that you have to aim for, that's just not the way business works. So we think about email in the same way we think about all of our business, really, which is that people, there's what's referred to as the funnel of awareness. So there's a lot of ways of breaking it down, but it just is there's some people who don't know anything about who you are or what you do. There's some people who are aware of a problem and they're looking for a solution, but they don't know you. There's some people then who know about you, but they don't know about your products. Then they learn about your products. Then maybe they buy and then you want to work with them to become uh, evangelist eventually. And so we, we're we building our email around that whole idea of the funnel. So different ways for people to opt in who know nothing about us. And some of those opt-in things have nothing to do with zero shoes. So we have, for example, a website called footwearetruth.com where I'm just giving away some eBooks about um, natural approaches to plantar fasciitis or a way to reduce running injury risk um, by 250%. And we happen to be a part of it, but the reason people are opting in is not about us. So it's a bit tangential, but still related. Yeah, yeah. And then for people who are on our website, we're giving them different ways to opt in as well with different things that we can do there. And the whole point there is to get them to um, ideally to segment them. So the people who know nothing about what we do or this whole idea of natural movement, we can give them one series of emails. The people who know but are trying to understand you know, what they want, we can give them a different series. The people who, who are trying to see if they're going to buy our product versus a competitor's, we give them a different series. And we can even break that down by what use cases they have. Are they runners? Are they hikers? Are they walkers? Are they, you know, whatever it is. So, but we, so you can get, you can get kind of um, 
simple, if you will, at the beginning with just a series for people who don't know who you are to try to get them to buy, or you can get really complicated to really try to break it down, which is the phase that we're in now. Once someone's a customer, same thing. Um, it's easy. It's old marketing 101. Uh, easier to sell something to someone who already bought from you than to get a new customer. So what do we do to take those customers immediately after they buy and give them information about things that would make them feel confident about their purchase, that might make them make another purchase or refer us to somebody else or various things where once they get the product, encourage them to leave us a review or to just know that if they have a problem to call us instead of just jumping on Facebook and complaining, <laughs> or, um, which is now like the thing for people to do. You know, yeah. I say to people on a regular basis, hey, if you have a problem, you can use the phone app on your phone and give us a call and we'll help you because we know better than some random person on Facebook or Instagram. People don't do that anymore. So in part because frankly, the algorithms um, reward you for complaining and, you know, uh, and saying uh, negative. negative. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, anyway, I could go on on that for a long time. It's really annoying. Like some of them are Sorry, I just saw a course about TikTok ads and the guy literally said, that your hook should be negative because that that's what works on TikTok. Don't um, be positive. No, no. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I say to people, if you're going to write an ad for me, like a headline for Google ads, for example, um, and your head, your, and we want to test your headline against other headlines. If your first headline, the one that comes to you is something like the most comfortable shoes you've ever put on your foot, the next headline better be, don't buy these damn shoes. And then there yeah. should be another one saying, my wife hates me now. I mean, you've got to definitely, you know, play both angles in a way that in a way that works because then you got to follow that up with something where people don't feel tricked they feel like they know they got hooked but they don't feel tricked which is an interesting difference yeah so okay. anyway so we have a whole post-sale sequence um initially that happens when people buy and then we are sending out a newsletter every week we're trying to see if we can justify uh, more than once a week that's something that we didn't do for years because i was the only one doing things and i didn't have time and every every internet marketer that i know has stories of things that they should have done sooner because of how much money it made them when they started doing it and things they still haven't done, even then they know it'll make them a bunch of money. So that was the first one is, you know, just having a weekly newsletter. And then um, we have sequences for people who have purchased more than X number of times. Um, we have sequences for people who haven't purchased in a while. We, of course, have a whole thing that we do when we have when we're launching new products or when we have a holiday sale. Um, so it's a pretty fleshed out campaign, uh, set of campaigns. But we're in the in the phase now where we're bringing in more people who um, can just do more different, better and test more iterations of things and see how things work. I mean, FYI, I don't know where you stand on this, but my favorite thing is uh, whenever someone says, here's the way to do it, I, I want to test the exact opposite. And and related to that, there's a personality to our company. We, we always try to um, make people aware that these are human beings on the other end of the screen here. And so if you want to deal with us, you know, you can reach out and pick up the phone and call me directly. You can talk to our customer happiness team directly. And so the because there's a personality to what we're doing, we don't want things to, you know, look to corporate. We don't, we want to look professional, but not, you know, like nameless, faceless, corporate, whatever. Yeah, so yeah. putting that all together, my favorite thing is uh, we, we brought some people on who said, well, here's what I think the design of your email should look like. A lot of graphics, really pretty, blah, blah, blah. I went split test that against just straight text. And of course the straight text one, 
Not true for everybody, not true for every email, but, um, and in fact, it wasn't just straight text. There was one that was straight text, but one was just, you know, much, much simpler, just didn't look so clean. Frankly, it just didn't look like everybody else. So it's kind of like website design. It's like, well, here's what's working because everyone's using Shopify and it looks like this. Cool. I definitely don't want to do that. I don't want to look like everybody else because what we're doing is not like everybody else. So there's, there's a thing about consistency with who you are as a brand and then testing to see what works, you know, without. So we're moving into this new phase of just testing, getting more granular, getting people to kind of choose their own adventure, um, getting them to self-identify so we know how to talk to them better instead of having just one message for everybody. Uh, although there's a lot of, again, consistency within that too. There's certain things that are that we say no matter who we're talking to, but there's yeah. some things where we can get more specific. Yeah, 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 I see. Um... By the way, plain text is interesting, and uh, we are experimenting with this as well, and we can see good results. Um, I think one thing, uh, or, or you know, one one factor really is the ego of the brand owner, you know, because they love <laughs> they love beautiful design, right? Yeah, many of them, and it doesn't matter if it converts a bit worse; they don't care. It looks nicer. So yeah, pe people always say to me, "What are your KPIs for this?" I go there's only one. Are we making sales? Are we changing people's lives? I mean, you know, it's, this is not about me. In fact, when we started the company, I deliberately tried to keep myself out of the, you know, not being the face of the company, because I knew at some point, if we're trying to sell it, if I'm directly connected to it, you know, that some people might perceive that as a negative. But what happened is, um, on day one, I just made a bunch of videos showing how to make these sandals, basically how to replicate our entire business model. And it was like my face for five seconds. You know, I'm Stephen Sashin from Zero Shoes and, you know, let me show you how to make a sandal. Then it's 10 minutes, of, you know, on my feet as I'm making the sandal, which led to some interesting emails that I was getting like, uh, can you show me more pictures of your feet, please? So, well, that was pretty entertaining. Um, I did not do that. But it became very clear very quickly and something that I knew, but I was trying to avoid is people relate to people. And so I became, you know, ended up becoming the face of the brand and with everything we do, my, myself and or my wife, because people relate to that. And there's, um, th there's an opportunity there. Um, but it's not about me. It's just that that's what happens to work better. If it worked better doing anything else, I would be happy to do that. I don't, it's not, this is not about me. Yeah. By the way, when I visited your website for the first time, I saw the, you, you introduced the product, uh, mm product page in a video and I was very surprised like who's this guy <laughs> that was my first impression but yeah. I really like this that you stand behind your shoes and you introduce you know the shoes to the potential customer I think that's yeah. a great yeah. I'll tell you something funny that we're that we that I tested a little bit. We're going to be deploying more. Um, one of the videos uh, that will be on there is not going to be me, but it is going to be my arms. So it's going to be, you know, basically holding a shoe, but not like this. It's going to be with the camera here. So you're just seeing arms holding the shoe and, you know, manipulating the shoe. So it feels like your arms doing it. And I know that sounds crazy and you think that wouldn't work. It totally works. Um, and outperformed other things that we were doing. So I, I'm my whole thing, I, the thing that I say often is I've been doing this for a long time. That means I have a lot of opinions, but it also means I don't give a shit what any of those opinions are. I just want to see the data. And is it working or not? And if it's not working, what can we learn from that before we just, you know, cut it all off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And it was a great conversation today. And uh yeah, we learned a lot about uh, your industry, but also yourself, how you think and how you build this company. So 
Uh, what are your goals for the next, let's say, three years? Change the world. You know, that's it. I mean, literally, and I know that sounds hyperbolic when I say it, but there's two things. One, we've had multi-billion dollar footwear brands say about us directly to someone that we know. Uh, what Zero Shoes is doing is legit. It's real. But we can't do it because if we did, it would be admitting we've been lying for 50 years. So uh, we're in an industry. Say again. That's an opportunity. Sounds like an opportunity. It, it is. It is an opportunity, except normally when you're disrupting that way, you're just coming in with basically a version of the same story, just a you know tweak of it. So for Uber, it's still a cab, just you know different version of a cab. But what we're doing is so different um, that we have to, as a as a marketer, what I need to get people to do is unbelieve something that they have been taught to believe for the last fifty years, mm -hmm. which is an interesting and complicated challenge. Um, I've, I've I've discovered ways of doing it that I've never met another um, copywriter or content creator who who's done it. But um, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. But because, as my wife says, there's enough shoe companies in the world, you don't need another shoe company unless your shoes are changing people's lives. And because we hear that all day, every day, when I say my goal is to change the world, it's simply because if we change enough lives, it will change the world. And yeah. we're changing lives when it comes to footwear. Most people are selling the same story. Hey, it's comfortable. Well, you know, we have that story as well. I like to say, feel what you've been missing, natural comfort, performance, and health. And we're making differences when it comes to not just comfort, but also performance and health in a way that literally no other brand other than a couple of my competitors is able to do. And when you put all that together, it, you know, it really can be world changing. So there's a lot of opportunities that we have, both with new products, new audiences. We're working with a number of professional sports leagues who are discovering that just barefoot training alone is making their athletes more resilient. And we're, of course, developing products for them so they can compete, whether it's on the field or on a court, and have more healthy games in a season, more seasons in a career. If we're able to do that, and it looks like we can, in fact, we can, um, you know, that can be world-changing. And so that's what we're doing. And we're expanding worldwide. We have an office in Prague. We're opening an office in the UK. We're going to be opening something in China at some point because um, we've done well there. So we're just, um, you know, f basically following the the lead that we're getting from our customers and the demand we're getting from people worldwide. Yeah, actually, that would be my last question. So the website is xeroshoes.com or EU? In Both. So we have zeroshoes.com, zeroshoes.eu, and zeroshoes.co.uk. So, okay. um, and there's some differences on them because some products sell some products sell better in the U.S. versus the EU, and vice versa. And also, then you put in uh, UK, and the UK site is different than the EU and the .com site right now because uh, we're testing out a new theme there. As we we took over that site from a, <clears throat> from a, an independent dealer, and we've redeveloped it. Um, and we were using Amazon for fulfillment because we didn't have our own warehouse. Now that's changed. So the site is changing because we're going to be using our own warehouse. And once that's all in place, then we roll that to EU because EU has more traffic than UK, but not as much as the US. And then we bring that to .com. So that's our biggest immediate goal, frankly, is in the next couple of months, um, just redeveloping the entire site, both from a, a technical design, a um, UI UX design, and then just on the messaging, on the marketing side. So there's things that I've learned that we haven't had been able to deploy yet um, that we're going to be able to deploy there. So that's our immediate goal as part of our world changing goal. Yeah. yeah. 
I just I'm just checked yeah I just checked the website and I think the UK website looks better that's fine oh there's no question it looks way better um, and it's performing well and when we add in and the, actually the first thing is once we officially launch it with all the things that we want in there the first thing is gonna we're gonna be split testing Jesus about 20 things that I've already identified that I want to see if you know it works better doing X Y or Z yeah. and um, uh, I'm really looking forward to that just having a very aggressive uh, testing methodology to see what we can do just to make life better and easier for people basically reduce the friction for yeah. finding what we're doing what's right for you and getting started yeah 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 so thanks again uh, Steven for this okay. great conversation today and uh, again saroshoes.com or co.uk or EU depending on your location also, um, I will put a link into the description, which is uh, my company's link. So we collected our top 100 email templates that uh, anyone can download. We sent out almost a half a billion emails in the past five years and collected the top 100. And finally, stay tuned. Every week we come out with a new podcast episode. Thanks everyone who watched us or listened to the podcast and uh, have an amazing day. Everybody.